uh, video clip, four minutes long, uh, by a Christian evangelist from Seattle at Mars Hill Church. His name is Jefferson Bethke. I think I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Jefferson Bethke. Uh, this really, uh, it went viral on the internet. People were sharing it with their friends for a while. It was everywhere. It was all over Facebook. It was all over YouTube. Uh, thousands, millions of people have now viewed this. It, it became very controversial. Uh, some religious people really resented his message. Uh, some non-religious people didn't understand at all how a person who is a minister who loves Jesus could say that he, that he doesn't like religion. But in any case, I want you to see it for yourselves, and then let's put it in the context of what James says about true and false religion. So watch this. This is Jefferson Bethke, Marshall Church, uh, Seattle. This is a spoken word piece. It's kind of like a poem. It's going to go by really fast for some of you, but just uh, stay with him. All right, here, here we go. Jefferson Bethke. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat, but it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken, which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it he called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage, while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. 
And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man, which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. What do you say? How do you respond to that? Go by pretty fast. Jefferson Bethke is his name. It resonated with a lot of young people. Understand that. It resonated with a lot of young people, a lot of young Christian people who would feel like he's articulating exactly what they feel, exactly what they think. Uh, What was he saying? He hates religion, but he loves Jesus. What does that even mean? Yeah, not a museum for saints, but a hospital for the broken. Yeah, that's an amazing kind of statement. Yeah, it's a different kind of picture for church because often churches don't feel like hospitals for the broken now, do they? Yeah. Well, what else? Right, and I think that's the distinction that, that Brother Jefferson is, is trying to make. We often... Uh, we may not think of religion as a hypocritical word, but, but we need to remember that the world, the outsiders, the non-believers often see us as hypocrites. They can be very, very critical and very distrustful of the church and especially the young generation. The young generation is very distrustful and suspicious of all authorities and all institutions. And so they tend to be very skeptical of, of churches. We, we seem not always to be practicing what we preach, which brings us to exactly where James has us moving into chapter 2. So go with me. Remember this morning I said that James is is talking about the difference between true and false religion, between pure and and, and religion that is not pure or or not genuine. And he sort of runs us through a a, a kind of series of tests. In in chapter 2, we we pick up exactly there. We're talking about what real faith looks like and and what would test it, what would reveal it for what it is. And uh, chapter 2, verse 1 helps us see another test of genuine faith. So take your Bibles, uh, follow along, grab a Bible out of the pew. I I really want us to be focusing on the Word of God together. James chapter 2, verse 1, we'll go to about verse 13 and we'll come up for air, okay? Let's start with verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit in the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me. 
your brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? And aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom and, and he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Have you ever, probably not supposed to do this, but have you ever been tempted to sort of judge another person's Christianity because of what they said or did? Are you ever tempted to do that? Ever tempted to look around at churches or other churches or just people who call themselves Christians and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, she does that and she calls herself a Christian. You ever think like that? I can't imagine that many of us have not, that there's something human about that, absolutely human. And understand, James would relate to that. James relates to that because this is exactly what James is saying to, to this group of Christians. And remember, he's talking about Christians scattered everywhere. But he would say, how can you call yourself a Christian? It's exactly what he says. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ when you favor some people over others? How can you call yourself Christians? That's, that's what he says. How can you call yourselves Christians? But because you see, James watches people and he studies people and, and he pays attention to how people live their lives. And he firmly believes that if you're a Christian on the inside, it will be made man manifest by the way you act on the outside. And, and remember, the big test we got to at the end of chapter 1 is how you treat people. So now, here's a, a, a kind of case study. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim, how can you call yourself Christians if you favor some people over others. Now the word that he actually uses there is, is, is an interesting Greek word that literally means to, to receive the face of a person. To, to receive the face. What does that mean? To, to receive the face of a person. How can you call yourself a Christian if you receive the face of a person? What's he saying? Yeah, judged by appearance, that's exactly what it, what it means. You, you look at the face, and you think you can look at the face and know something about the heart. Now, this word is, is not used very often in Scripture. In the New Testament, it's used three other times. And in all of the instances when this word is used, this to receive the face of another, it's used to say that God doesn't do that. Okay, so understand that. In every other instance when this word is used, it's used to say God doesn't do this. So, if God never does this, if God does not look on the face of people, but God looks at the heart, how can you, James would say, call yourself a Christian if you judge people by appearances? Now, now we would call this prejudice. Prejudice, if, if you break that word down, pre always means 
before to come before. Uh, this has to do with all those words that have to do with judging. So prejudice means to judge beforehand, to, to prejudge. And so the, the accusation is that, that we often prejudge people. We, we judge beforehand. We judge before what? Before we know them. Yeah, we, we judge before we know enough to judge. And I would argue we never know enough to judge. But, but, but the idea here is we judge people too quickly because we think that if we look at the face, if we, we think if we see a person from the outside, then we know something about them. It's, it, it, it's prejudice. And notice what James says. It's always sin. It's, it, it's always sin. Because God never does this. God never does this. This is contradictory to the very character and nature of God. So if you claim to belong to God, if you claim to be a Christian, but you are one who judges people based on appearances, James says, how can you do that? How can you call yourself a Christian? Then our culture, prejudice has often been related to race, often been related to, to, to skin color. That wasn't necessarily the kind of prejudice, though, that James uses as a test. Now, it's a good test. It's a fair test, and many of us would fail that test. Many of us, we have feelings about a people of other races. Maybe it's one other race or, or all other races. Everybody different from you, I, I don't know. But you don't know anything about a person by looking at the color of their skin. Surely you know that by now, right? And whenever you're tempted to say, oh, all those people are the same, do you not understand? James would say, how can you call yourself a Christian and, and then make a statement like that? All those people are the same don't know enough to judge and we don't judge by appearance uh, if we belong to Christ so here's the test James's test is different it's not uh, color of skin what is it verse 2 y'all can make me read the whole passage again verse 2 example someone comes into your meeting somebody comes into church and what two people actually here's the test one person comes in yeah, dressed in fancy clothes, expensive jewelry. Would you notice that? If somebody came in looking really nice, very attractive family comes walking in, uh, really nicely dressed, and they come in in a really nice car, would you notice them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if they came into your Sunday school class, what would you do? You welcome them. Fall all over yourself. To, I mean, that's kind of human nature. Suppose somebody comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and another one comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. Okay, if someone comes into our meeting poor and dressed in dirty clothes, would they be treated differently at our church? I mean, you know... Poor and, and dressed in dirty clothes. I mean, I mean, kind of the, you know, smell them before you see them kind of person. Dirty clothes tend to smell, you know, poor. You understand? This is the person that comes in, that they slip in between Sunday school and church, and they sort of stand back in the vestibule, and they just sort of look around at everybody. Yeah. Would they get welcomed differently than, than the nice-dressed family that comes in in the car and the nice clothes and, and the people who, uh, who smile and, and seem to fit right in? Because this is what James says, if you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but say to the poor and you can stand over there or else sit in the floor. Now, would we say that? Would we tell a poor person, won't you sit in the floor? Won't you stand over there? No. What would we say to them? Poor person comes in, they're standing over in the vestibule, dressed, dressed kind of poor, bad clothes. What would we say to them? 
Somebody go get Warren. Yeah, the, the Greek word there, El sit in the floor, means somebody go get Warren. I mean, exactly. In other words, this is a person that we're going to treat differently. And for the most part, let's be honest, we're going to go get Warren so Warren can take care of that person and get them out of here. Am, am I missing something? Isn't that pretty much what we're doing? Somebody go get Warren. Let Warren take that person in the back room, find out what they need so we can give them what they need and they'll get out of here. So, very different. Very, very different. If, if you do this, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? And aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to the ones who love him? But, but you dishonor the poor. Okay, we've already said that, that this word, to receive the face of another, is used in Scripture always, other than in James, always to say that God doesn't do this. God does not play favorites. He does not entertain favorites. God is not a respecter of persons. That's clear in Scripture. And yet right here, it says that God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith. So there is also this theme in Scripture that God actually has this kind of preferential treatment for the poor. That God actually chooses the poor and blesses the poor in ways that you can't see or understand and that indeed one of these days the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him is going to be turned over to the poor how do you hold that together how can you say that God doesn't respect people that God doesn't treat anybody different but then it says don't you know that God has a special place in his heart for the poor? Don't you know that the kingdom he's promised to those who love him is going to one day belong to the poor? Yeah, the poor perhaps have a different perspective, a different way of approaching God in faith. I don't know, I know some pretty rotten poor people. I mean, I, I know some poor people that they're not good Christians either. I mean, some rotten poor people. What does this even mean? Yeah, sometimes in a person's poverty, they can relate to, to, to need and, and how they need God more than those of us who feel like we, we, we need nothing. You see, when you read a passage like that, aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who, who, who love him? Honestly, that's hard for most of us because we're not poor. Now we think we're poor. We compare ourselves to rich people, people richer than we are, and then we imagine that we're poor because we can't get a new iPhone every two years. And now there are commercials. You should be able to upgrade your phone more often than every two years. It's, it's like it's a crime that you have to carry the same phone around for more than 24 months. It's like somebody's robbing you people. You get angry about it. You should be able to upgrade when you want. Really? I mean, that's our culture. That's our culture. We should be able to have the newest phone the minute it drops. Don't tell me I can't have anything I want. It's an amazing and a detestable kind of greed that characterizes our culture. And often it absolutely corrupts the religion of our churches. We have a sort of preference for rich people. 
We really roll out the red carpet for people, not just who look like we look, but who might look like if we get associated with them, we end up looking better. James says that's a pretty good test of the purity of your faith. Are you one of those people who tends to prefer one kind of person over another, whether it's color of skin or rich versus poor? Let's go, verse 8. Yes, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal law. Okay, what is the royal law? What's that even mean? Royal law. What law is he referring to? Yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. So, so James calls that one law, that one command, love your neighbor as yourself, he calls that the royal law. What's that mean? Why would he call it the royal law? Yeah, it's the royal law, which means this is the king of all the laws. That this is, this is the leading law. You understand? This is a law given to us by the king. Jesus himself said, a new commandment I give to you. So, so this is the royal law. This is the king of all the laws, and it is to love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. What's James saying there? What's his point? Yeah, you break one law, you're a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter what other laws you've managed to keep. You may say, well, I'm not a thief. I ain't no thief. Ten commandments say thou shalt not steal, and I'm not a thief. Ten commandments say thou shalt not kill, and I ain't never killed nothing. I won't even kill a spider. Yeah, but but you lie. You you bear false witness. You you, you lie. And and James would say, if if you break one, you've broken them all. You're, You're still a lawbreaker. Now remember, he's talking to people who have deceived themselves, people who fooled themselves into thinking that they're walking with God just because they know the rules, just because they know the religious rules. Because they're so familiar with God's word, they somehow have fooled themselves into thinking that they're walking with God. And this is James deflating that kind of puffed up faith, you understand? This is James just letting the air out of their false religion. And this is what he says. You may feel really good about yourself for all the things you don't do, but look how you treat people. Notice how you treat people. And if you do not follow the law of love, you're a lawbreaker just as sure as any thief, adulterer, murderer in the world. So whatever you say or do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy What's mercy? Undeserved favor. Yeah. Mercy. Yeah. Somebody else, give me a definition in real life terms. What's mercy? Yeah, not not getting what, what I deserve. Mercy is when somebody is fully entitled to do whatever it is that I've got coming to me, but I don't get what's coming to me. It's mercy. It's when somebody gives you a break. 
Somebody just gives you a break. And notice what it says. There will be no mercy. God is not going to give you any breaks. God is not going to shave off anything from your sentence, from your condemnation. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Remember, James is talking to religious people, to Christian people. He says, you're counting on a lot of mercy from God, are you not? I mean, you're worthy of condemnation, eternity in hell. That's what you've got coming to you. But you're counting on God's mercy, right? There'll be no mercy for those who show no mercy to others. What's the bottom line? You're supposed to give people a break. You're supposed to treat people right, treat people good. Treat them according to the royal law of love. What part of love have we misunderstood? What part of walking with Christ have we misunderstood? It's all going to come down to how we treat people. Let's keep going. This is good. Verses 14 and following are very, very controversial, of course. It's the whole faith versus works controversy, and we'll touch it tonight. Verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Is that anybody's favorite verse? Because it ought to be. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anybody? Okay, so get with me. Before James starts this, let's find his context. What's he talking about? If he's writing to real Christians and there's a real situation here, what is the situation? What what question is he about to address here? In church terms, what is it he sees that he wants to talk about? Showing love to others, doing for others, or failing to show love to others. Yeah, good, good. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but have nothing to show for it in your actions? James is at this point addressing what is probably, if if you've been in church very long, one of the most frustrating things for believers. And again, it's hard because it almost sounds like we're judging each other. But but, but if you are in the body of Christ, you probably have seen this frustration. It it has to do with sort of this puzzle of of inactive believers. This this incredible problem in the church of, of inactive believers. Now, what do I mean by that term, inactive believers? Well, what's an inactive believer? Matt says somebody who just shows up, doesn't put into the church. James has a pretty good definition right here, verse 14. What's his definition? Yeah, it's all talk. It's all talk. Uh, Jefferson Bethke says it's a person who you'd only know they're a Christian by their Facebook. Do you know those Christians? The funny thing is there are a whole lot of people putting this video on their Facebook, and I thought, you're kidding, you're a Christian? Yesterday on Facebook, you indicated that you liked weed. I mean, you understand? It's this incredible contradiction, and sometimes people just, with their words, they claim to know Jesus, they claim Christian faith, but their actions, their life does not back that up. 
it's an incredible puzzle because it's a contradictory of the faith. It's a contradictory a contradiction to what James talks about when the word of God comes in and puts down roots and then transforms our lives. So many people who claim to be Christians, but their lives are not transformed. That their actions are, are not in any way in, in harmony with the law of love, with the way of Christ. So, so this is what he's addressing here. The problem of inactive believers, people who, who, who do not walk their talk. You understand that the, the video doesn't match the audio. So, so here we go. What good is it? Dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save anyone? That's a rhetorical question, which means the answer is no. I mean, that's the point. It's not a real question. He's saying, of course not. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing. Oh, my goodness, he's back on this again. He won't get off of it. James is so concerned for the poor. It's all he talks about. What's his problem? Why doesn't he just write a check to somebody and get over it? Every time he makes an illustration about how we're supposed to live our lives as Christians, he goes back to how we treat the poor. He's been watching too many of those late night infomercials with that, that Sarah McLachlan sad song and all the puppies. I, I, mean, I mean, come on, James, Why? It's interesting, we don't have a lot of samples of James's writing, but anytime you find James in Scripture, he usually makes a point of mentioning the poor and our responsibility to the poor. Acts chapter 15, when James is writing from the Jerusalem Council, he tells all the Christians everywhere, and, and the last thing is, remember the poor. Remember the poor. Remember that James was Jesus's brother before he was a follower of Jesus, before he was a disciple. Remember that from everything we know in Scripture, Mary and Joseph and their seven, eight kids were a poor family. This was a poor family. Remember that when Paul was traveling all through his missionary journeys, he kept trying to take up a collection to send money back to help the poor in Jerusalem. And remember that James is the pastor at the church in Jerusalem. So James has a heart for the poor. Maybe we should have more of a heart for the poor. Notice what he says. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It's dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Interesting. You say you have faith for you believe that there's one God? <laughs> good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Faith without works is dead. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happens, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. 
He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, just go ask J.C. Kirby, as the body is dead without breath, so faith without works is dead. We've been talking about true faith versus false faith, and now James sort of changes the idea. It's, it's dead faith versus living faith. And, and what's the sure sign of dead faith? Yeah, no life that backs it up. In other words, you can watch a person how they live and you can know something about their faith. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. It's what James says. Faith finds its completion in works. It works its way out. You see, faith is important. It's very important. Notice how James kind of, if you're into debate, he sort of sets up a kind of argument. Larry, what would you call it? Verse 18. Now, someone may argue. What do you call that? He sort of has an imaginary debate partner now. Is there a term for that in debating or in speech? What? Prosable? Proso? Propedia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pro. Prosopopedia. There you go, people. If you're ever on Jeopardy. Okay? If you're ever on Jeopardy. Yeah. In other words, he sets up this argument with somebody that's not there. Now, somebody's going to say this. And so he's arguing against this piece, person who might say this. The, the funny thing is, some people say he's arguing with somebody we know. You didn't know you and James had friends in common, did you? Some people say James is arguing with somebody we all know. That, that James actually is having a debate with somebody in Scripture. That James doesn't necessarily agree with, with somebody else who writes books in the Bible. And so James now is actually called in somebody. Now somebody might say, but then it sounds a whole lot like what somebody said. And it's somebody we know. Who? Paul. Some people say that James and Paul don't get along, that, that, that Paul is the one who argues that faith, uh, everything's about faith, salvation by faith, and not works. And James is now trying to, to, to change that picture, that he's arguing against Paul. Uh, let's play with that a minute. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Come on, let's hear the pages turning. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Stay with me. This is good stuff. Follow this. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. First person there, read it with a loud voice. We were made right with God through faith and not by works, not by obeying the law. That's what Paul says. Now write down the page, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift but something they have earned. But people counted, are counted as righteous not because of their work but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. 
Yeah. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Let's pile it on. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, We know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we obeyed the law. No one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Okay, one more. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. You know this one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, about two pages over. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Okay, now go back to James. Chapter 2, verse 18. Someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can... You show me your faith if you don't have good deeds. I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, you believe that there's one God, good for you. Even the devil believes and trembles in terror. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham, verse 21, was shown to be right with God by his actions? Is that what the scripture said? It said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How do we solve this? Did James just go rogue in all of Scripture? Is he now preaching a different gospel? Is James saying that, that indeed it really is about works? That it's not just faith? It's not salvation by faith alone, but it's faith plus works? Because James says faith without works is dead. That kind of faith won't save anybody, the kind that doesn't have works with it. So... Jack says, and that's excellent, Jack says that if those works are coming from us as an attempt to, to earn something or gain something from God, then, then we can never have salvation but by works in that way. Yeah, Jack's putting his finger on exactly what a, a lot of people miss. You can't say that James is arguing against the idea that salvation is by faith. You can't say that James is arguing against Paul because he's not. He's not. Now, now remember what we said from the very beginning. What is the question that James is struggling with here? What is he trying to address? What problem in the church is James trying to, to explain here? False religion. Yeah. James's concern is for inactive believers, people who claim to be Christians but live a life that is contradictory to the way of Christ, contradictory to the life of love. So James is not talking about how does a person get saved here. James is talking about what do you do? How do you explain all these people who claim to be Christians, but they live like the devil? Well, how do you explain the problem of inactive believers? Paul, on the other hand, is trying to explain what? How people get saved. So they're answering two very different questions, so it's not fair to say they're arguing against each other. They're not. James is talking to Christians about the problem of inactive believers. 
Paul's trying to explain how Jews and Gentiles all get saved the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. Larry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, each man is entitled to, to define his own terms. And when James talks about works or good deeds in his letter, he's not using that word in the same way that Paul uses it when he talks about salvation is not by works. Okay? So, so what does Paul mean when he says it, it's by faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast? What is Paul talking about primarily? Yeah, the Jewish law, keeping the Jewish law. That, that is always Paul's concern. Because remember, he's trying to explain the gospel from a Jewish perspective. And he's trying to say it's not a matter of, of, of keeping the law. But when James talks about works to Christians, what's he talking about? How would he define that word? Yeah, the, the good deeds that James talks about really come from our desire to follow after Christ and, 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 and the effect of God's word as it operates in our lives. It's like Larry says, James's idea of works would probably have more to do with something like the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of a life that is genuinely religious, that the life that is genuinely touched by Christ, it's going to automatically bear fruit. That that life is going to be productive. And, and the fruit that is born out of genuine faith is, is a life of good deeds. A life of deeds that are reflective of the ways of, of Christ. So again, James's issue pretty much all day today has been this whole problem of, of inactive believers. This problem that some people seem to have faith, they claim to have faith, but there's nothing to show for that in their lives. So James is trying to make a distinction between dead religion and, and living faith in Jesus, between false and, and, and impure religion and, and genuine religion in the sight of, of God the Father. So let's end the day uh, like this. Um, in, in this church, at Woodburn Baptist Church, in, in every age group from nursery all the way to senior adults. What can we do to nurture real faith, living faith? What can we do to, to raise up a, a church full of real Christians? Any ideas? Encourage each other how? Yeah, Scripture says we should look for, look for ways to encourage each other, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Yeah, that sounds like something James would say, although he didn't say it. Look for ways to encourage, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Keep going. How do we do this? Because my hunch is in a church our size, we've got a whole lot of people whose, um, whose faith is inflated.
Warren leading us as a staff, one of the things Warren is really trying to do, it was amazing to see 30-something people baptized at the creek, wasn't it? It was, it was thrilling. But staff meeting the next Tuesday was pretty sobering um, because we reminded each other that as a church, we have a tremendous responsibility to make disciples, not just to dip people through the water at the creek, but, but to make disciples. And, and so the real question was, what do we do with all of these new Christians? It's a blessing. It's also a tremendous responsibility. One of the things that Warren is doing is pairing every single one of those new believers up with a, a mature believer who's determined and dedicated to discipling them, to bringing them along. That's a good example. Uh, you, you encourage Melanie to use her best gifts uh, in, in serving the Lord here. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, Joe Neal. stop pick that girl up uh, anytime she's beside the road bring her to church she'd go get her yeah you were yeah hoping yeah your mama your mama taught you all well yeah Rebecca
merciful and gracious toward all. Rebecca, not to lift you up, but I see you doing that very well. Uh, Rebecca, very faithful in church, but hardly ever comes without somebody in the car with her. Do you notice that? Uh, Usually three or four uh, different people and often uh, young men and women in need, and they see you as a person who will be their friend. Uh, God bless you for that. To make things actually pretty simple, go back with me to James, where we started this morning, James chapter 1. I don't want to make it sound too simple, but I want to help you understand the the key. We'll just start in verse 22, James 1, 22. Don't just listen to God's word. Do what it says. But, But it begins with what? What's the assumption here? You do want to be a doer of God's word, but but you have to do what first? You have to hear it first. You have to listen to what God says first. And honestly, I feel like for a lot of us, that's the step that we miss. We have to be in God's word. This is where it all begins. And and I'm just begging you as your pastor to, to get into God's word, but be reading God's word. It's not an exercise in literature brothers and sisters. It's about life change. It's about transformation. It's about putting yourself before God every day. Uh, This is why we try to develop a habit, a daily habit of reading the Bible. It's just putting yourself before God so he can speak to you. It it starts there, and it's heartbreaking to me as a pastor that so many of our folks just really don't seem to have any real appetite for God's word. So many of us at Woodburn don't, don't carry our Bibles to church, and I know I can't judge much by that, but my hunch is if you really don't want to read it in church, I, I just have a hard time believing you're going to read it anywhere else either. This is the easy place to, to open God's Word and, and, and read it. it. It just begins there, and it begins with, with, with a personal, uh, attentive listening to God's Word and, and then hearing it well and, and doing what it says. Just don't forget that everything we've talked about today comes back to the power of God's word in our hearts to change the way we live our lives. Uh, You can't uh, live the life of Christ without Christ, and in the life of Christ, you need his word in your life every single day. And I encourage you to uh, come back to God's word and hear what it says, and then uh, learn to do it. Any final thoughts? Anything? To answer the question that's burning in all your, all your hearts, why is Brother Tim sitting down? Is, is he getting old? That's what somebody asked. Have you sprained your ankle? So somebody else said no, no. Honestly, in this series, I'm trying myself to focus more on God's Word. I'm trying to focus on uh, verse by verse, and, and this helps me. And, and I hope it relaxes the climate a little bit so that we all can just focus on God's Word. I'm trying to be less of a distraction myself with the gymnastic show that I perform and, and that's not a show, it's really difficult for me. If you're on the front row, I'm, I, mean, I am going crazy in this chair, man. I'm, I'm walking and pumping. Uh, uh, but, but I'm really trying to just focus us on God's word for this series. I, I'm not trying to, to do anything special or be anything different. Uh, I, I'm just really trying to signal that, that I, want, I want this to be about God's word. Let's stand. Let's be dismissed. We do have a family meeting coming up. Uh, there is a new constitution body.